The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Brett Christophers. We talked about his new book, Rontier Capitalism, who owns the economy and who pays for it. We chatted about the extraordinary scale of monopolistic rent-seeking in the UK economy, why the concept of rentierization is more useful and more accurate than the notion of financialization when talking about the trajectory of the UK and world economies. And we also talked about how and why entrepreneurialism and competitiveness are values that are taken up far more by ordinary people in the labour market than they are by UK business. Remember that if you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview, you can sign up as a PTO supporter on Patreon. For £3 a month, you can get access to extended versions of regular episodes, and £5 patrons also get exclusive access to episodes of PTO Extra, shorter interviews on current events. And if you're outside the UK, you can now also support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is The Corona Crash by Grace Blakely. In The Corona Crash, leading economics commentator Grace Blakely theorises the epoch-making changes that the coronavirus brings in its wake. Free market competitive capitalism is dead, and the separation between politics and economics can no longer be sustained. The Corona Crash by Grace Blakely is out now from Verso Books and the latest in their coronavirus pamphlet series, short books that respond to multiple unfolding and connected crises related to the global pandemic. It's also part of their November book club reading. You can buy it directly from their website or get it as part of your Verso book club membership. And now to today's interview. Brett Christophers is a political economist and economic geographer. He's the author of The New Enclosure, which won the Isaac and Tamara Deutsche Memorial Prize. His new book, Rontier Capitalism, which was the topic of our conversation, is out now. I began the interview by asking Brett to explain what rentierism is and what defines a rentier economy. So specify two things there, rentierism and a rentier economy. And I'll get to both of those. But obviously, first, before talking about rentierism, we need to talk about rent and what rent is. So rent is, as I say in the book, is a very complex and contested concept with a long kind of conceptual history within economics of of various different stripes. And what I say in the book is that you can, you know, you can basically whittle down the different understandings of rent to two main understandings, one of which is I refer to as kind of a heterodox understanding and the other one is a more orthodox understanding. So the heterodox understanding, which is the one to which I lean primarily, understands rent as income derived from the ownership or control of a scarce asset of some kind. 
Classically, land was the was the the classic asset from which rent was generated. But as I say in the book, there are all sorts of other types of scarce assets that contribute to the generation of of income or rent today. So that's the the heterodox understanding. The orthodox kind of mainstream economics understanding is very different. And within that tradition, rent is basically a kind of excess. It's the excess income that is generated by virtue of any departure from kind of an idealized competitive market scenario. So if, if normal profits are those that are generated under a competitive scenario, rents are the excess profits generated by virtue of a lack of competition. And so in the book, I do something which I'm guessing will probably not meet with everyone's satisfaction, but I, I, I draw on both those traditions. So my take on rent is primarily a heterodox one. So my definition is grounded in this understanding of income based on the control of scarce assets. But what I also say is that the, the market conditions under which those rents are realized also matter. And that's the kind of mainstream emphasis, which is to say that market conditions matter. So I say, you know, rent is essentially income derived from control of a scarce asset. But I add to that that it's income realized in the context of an absence of meaningful market competition. That's rent. And so rentierism essentially is, a, is the economic activity of earning rent. So a, a rentier is a, an entity whose income is dominated by rent. And what I say in the book, I, I kind of add two sort of uh, qualifications to that. One of which is to say that uh, a rentier's income is rarely, if ever, totally about rent. So work of various types is normally required to enable the asset, whether it's land or whatever else, to generate rent. And the other thing I say is that the rentier can be either a company or an individual. And I think this is really important because, you know, generally when people think about rentiers, they think about idle, wealthy, say, landed gentry, you know, back in the day of the Gilded Age, you know, earning their rents on land and on financial assets. And so people typically associate rentiers with individuals or households. But the reality today is that is that the vast bulk of rent-generating assets are not owned by individuals or households. They're owned by companies. So the book is, to a large extent, about corporate rentierism rather than individual or household rentierism, though I do talk about rents earned by individuals and households. So that's rentierism. And then rentier, the rentier economy, or, or what I refer to as rentier capitalism, is essentially when is when capitalism becomes dominated by rents and by rentiers. So if you have a an economic situation in which rent has become overwhelmingly important, then that's what I refer to as rentier capitalism or a rentier economy. And my argument is that if you look at the UK economy today, it's kind of a quintessential case of a rentier economy. You know, across the board, you have companies in particular, but also individuals and households, earning these rents on scarce assets of various kinds. Another term that you make use of is balance sheet capitalism. Can you explain what that means exactly and how it contrasts with business that does not operate according to the logic of, of rentierism? It's another good question. The reason I use that term is to try to sort of, is one of the ways in which I try to make this concept of rentierism or of rentier capitalism accessible to people. And what I argue is that, you know, if you think about a, a company, and you think about its various different financial statements. So you have the profit and loss account, you have the cash flow statement and the balance sheet. 
So what the balance sheet is, is a point in time assessment of a company's assets and liabilities. So the liabilities, of, of course, are the, thing, are the things that the company owes of various different kinds. They can be you know, financial liabilities. They can be operating liabilities. Assets are the things that the company puts on its balance sheets that are expected to generate future economic benefits. They are, by dictionary definition, items of value owned. And what I argue is that in the case of a rentier company, the balance sheet becomes all important because it's all about these assets from which the company expects to generate future economic benefits. So in the case of non-rentier companies, the balance sheet might not be so significant. But in the case of a rentier company, the balance sheet is all important because that's where you see these all important assets and the value that is attached to them. So if you look at a land, a property company, then the balance sheet tells you what land it owns and how much that land is worth and how much rent it generates per annum. If you look at a financial company, then the balance sheet tells you all about the nature and value of the financial assets that that company owns. If you look at, say, a consumer goods manufacturer, then it will tell you the value of the brands that that company owns and so on and so forth. So by using the term balance sheet capitalism, I'm trying to point out that the balance sheet is where you look to see what those assets are that these types of companies own. And that focus on sweating assets and the relative lack of income derived from production, that obviously seems to lead to a lot of talk around the kind of language of, of parasitism or, or vampirism. Do you find that that kind of language useful in thinking about rentierism? That's a very good question. Personally, I, I don't go down that road in the book. And in not doing so, I think that's one thing that, that sets my account apart from various of the other accounts of rentier capitalism that have appeared in recent years. So if you look at the work of, and I'm, I'm going to point to two or three key individuals here, if you look at the work of someone like Andrew Sayer in his book, Why We Can't Afford the Rich, if you look at Guy Standing's book, The Corruption of Capitalism, and if you look at Mariana Mazzucatu's book, The Value of Everything, they're all, to a significant extent, books about rentier capitalism. And their key argument is that rent is unearned income. And in saying that rent is unearned income, they are specifically distinguishing it from the income earned by what they refer to as productive capitalists, for whom profit is what they describe as earned income. And I think at the end of the day, those accounts are really a kind of moral critiques of rentier capitalism, because what they're really saying is that the rentier doesn't deserve their income because they haven't done the necessary hard work to derive that income. Now, I'm skeptical of that argument for a variety of reasons, but the main one I'm skeptical of it is, is that I'm not entirely convinced that so-called, you know, quote unquote, productive capitalists have necessarily done the hard work required to generate their profits either. You know, productive capitalists own a different type of asset, what we tend to refer to as the means of production, rather than, say, land or financial assets or intellectual property. And of course, it's their workers that do the work to earn the income that foregrounds the profit earned by those productive capitalists. So I'm very, very sceptical about that distinction between productive capitalists and their earned income on the one hand, 
and rentier capitalists on their unearned income on the other. So my the critique that I try to develop in the book about rentier capitalism is what I think of as a political economic critique rather than a moral economic critique. I don't go down that road of thinking about rentierism in terms of value extraction rather than value creation and in terms of parasitism. I think the question of kind of where you draw the line between, you know, where value is being created and where it's being extracted between a creator and a parasite is a very, very tortuous and difficult road to go down. And would you say that that perhaps reflects different political commitments in terms of someone like Matt Sakatis, say, or, or, or somebody like Will Hutton, who also is very critical of what he terms financialization, say, and perhaps your own politics, which might be more grounded in a Marxist analysis? Yeah, maybe. I've written about this specifically elsewhere. And, and, and what I suggest is that that kind of language of parasitism, and in particular, the attachment of that imagery, that concept and that language specifically to rentiers, including, for example, landlords or financial institutions, is kind of harks back much more to Ricardo than to Marx. So, you know, if you go back to Marx, you know, Marx essentially saw all capitalists as parasites, you know, in the sense that capital in general, whether it's productive capital or rentier capital, if you want to use those terms, are extracting the surplus value created by workers in, in the realm of production. Productive capitalists are parasites in the form of creaming that surplus value off it off as what he called profit of enterprise. Landlords cream it off in the form of ground rent and financial capitalists cream it off in the form of, of, of interest. Whereas Ricardo made this much clearer distinction between what the likes of Mazzucato would call productive capitalists and unproductive capitalists. And so I think in that other text that I just referred to, I, I refer to Mazzucato and, and others writing in a similar way as the new Ricardians. I think they're coming at things from a very much Ricardian perspective. Would my perspective be more grounded in Marx? I, you know, I'm not necessarily sh- even sure about that, maybe. But at the same time, I think, you know, Marx also, you know, talks about productive and unproductive labour. And I find those concepts very, very tricky and problematic to operationalize. So I try not to go down that route at all. In the preface to the book, you write about a company called Arkiva, a major telecommunications company that owns much of the UK's telecoms infrastructure. And you know, it's not a company that many people will have heard of. And I certainly wasn't aware of Arkiva before. Could you talk a bit about the company and how it's emblematic of of the rontierization of the UK economy? Yeah, so Arkiva owns lots and lots of important assets in respect of the UK telecommunications and broadcasting landscape. So, for example, it owns transmission towers that enable broadcasting to take place. And it also owns, or at least licenses, several of the multiplexes through which broadcast signals are transmitted for UK terrestrial radio and television. And the reason I refer to Arkiva as kind of a classical rentier is that its business really is owning and controlling assets rather than actually really doing anything. And the way it makes money is essentially by receiving access and usage payments from those companies who need to access its infrastructure in order to to operate their businesses. So radio and television broadcasters and mobile telephony network operators and they essentially are, you know, while they don't call it this, what they are essentially doing is paying Arkiva rents in order to use their infrastructure. And so 
Arkiva is what I refer to as an infrastructure rentier. It's a rentier that makes money through the ownership or control of infrastructures that are essential to service delivery of various kinds. And those services can be telecommunication services, but they can also be, say, water or wastewater services. So the owners of the UK's water and wastewater infrastructure are also rentiers in that sense. And so too are are the owners of you know the electricity and gas transmission distribution networks in the UK. The thing that unites them is the fact that they control these infrastructures that others need to access in order to be able to provide the services that they provide. In order to maintain their very privileged and profitable position within the UK economy, is it simply a matter of ensuring a certain degree of effectiveness in in the maintenance of their assets? Or are there other threats to their continued control of those assets? That's an interesting question. I think one of the issues that... So just if I backtrack a little bit here. So a lot of those a lot of those relevant infrastructures are owned by private operators like the archivers and so on today, not because they've always been that way, but because they these are infrastructures that used to be owned by the public sector and that not least in the 1980s and 1990s were privatized and and as I say in the book that you know the UK has probably gone as far if not further down the road of comprehensively privatizing these essential infrastructures, these infrastructures whereby utility services of various kinds are provided more than anyone else. And I think that, you know, even those who, you know, ideologically or conceptually are in favor of privatization, who argue that, you know, private sector operators are able to manage these infrastructures more efficiently than the public sector ever did. Even many of those individuals would say that part of the problem that that has been encountered since then is that these operators have simply kind of sat on those assets. They haven't invested in maintaining them and in improving them and then thereby, you know, enabling better services to to be delivered precisely because there are simply no threats to those operators. They are, they are in control of what are often referred to as natural monopolies. You know, so Thames Water has a monopoly over the control and operation of water and wastewater infrastructures within its region. And so what happens is that these owners end up sweating these assets, kind of extracting every last ounce of rent that can be extracted from them, rather than investing in improving them, simply because they don't need to. Their customers are captive. They can't, you know, if you're in the Thames Water region, you can't say, I would like to receive my water from, you know, you know, United Utilities or Seven Trent or anybody else. You're a, you're a captive customer. And because of that captive situation, those infrastructure rentiers end up, exp- you know, exploiting their customer base because they because they can. On that, on the, on the question of monopolization. So in the book, you talk about how rentierization is pretty much been one of the perhaps the most important product of the neoliberal revolution of the 1970s. But do you find it at all surprising the extent to which there is this extraordinary disconnect between the rhetoric of neoliberalization, which is after all, all about entrepreneurialism, competition and efficiency, and the reality that we see of, of monopolization and, and rent seeking. And it seems as if the injunction to be entrepreneurial and to be competitive is more taken up by people in the labor market than it is regarding business. I mean, do you see anything surprising just the extent of that kind of disconnect that's a really good point i mean i think others have 
talked about this disconnect before. You know, someone like Phil Morofsky in particular, you know, repeatedly makes the point, the neoliberals, the neoliberal thought collective, back in the day, back in, you know, the 1930s and 1940s, in the early, in the early period of, neo, of neoliberal thinking, opposition to monopoly was one of the central pillars of neoliberal thinking. But, you know, neoliberals long since made peace with, with monopoly of various kinds. And they did so, you know, on, on, on the grounds that ultimately, I think, relatively spurious grounds that monopoly could be more efficient. It could provide greater consumer welfare than, than competition. But at the same time, I think you're completely right that the public facing rhetoric of, you know, a free markets that we come, that we think of and when we think about neoliberalism, continues to push this idea that neoliberalism is about competition, it's about entrepreneurialism, it's about anything but monopoly. But no, absolutely, the reality is that the, is that the neoliberal period, if we think since the, you know, since the end of the 1970s, has across the board, both geographically and sectorally, seen massively increasing amounts of monopoly power, of market power of various kinds, not just in terms of greater degrees of industry concentration, but also in terms of, you know, greater private control of monopolistic assets, which is which is what I talk about in the book. So for sure, it's this it's this fundamental disconnect between the rhetoric and the reality of neoliberalism. And you're right. You're also right that, you know, one of the one of the things I try to do in the book is is distinguish between neoliberalism on the one hand and, and rontierism and rontierization on the other. And the way I do that is to say that if we think about rontierization as the growing or as kind of the ascendancy of rontier type activities and rontier type companies, what we can think of as neoliberalism is, is kind of the, the, the political program that has put in place the conditions for rontierization to take place. So what I argue in the book is that one of the reasons why the UK has become a kind of a, a particularly fertile breeding ground for, for rent and rontierism is because it is also the place where kind of neoliberal orthodoxy has been pursued more ruthlessly than anywhere else. So, you know, the UK has, because of privatisation, there are more rent generating assets than anywhere else because of various things like the, you know, the defanging of competition law, of antitrust law, rent generating assets are better protected from competition than they are in other countries. And because of things like, you know, generous tax treatments in relation to capital gains and, you know, an asset exploitation more generally, assets owned by the private sector are able to more readily generate income than they are elsewhere because of those tax protections. In the book, you point out that criticism of rontierism can be found not just on the left, but also in venues such as the Financial Times and, and The Economist. And indeed, today, the uh, Martin Wolf and the FT is, is actually recommending your book as one of the best books on economics to come out this year. Does that suggest to you that it's plausible to imagine some kind of ruling class project to turn away from rontierism that might perhaps draw on dissident strands of neoliberalism, perhaps German ordo-liberalism, which, going back to your point about monopoly, was very concerned about preventing the emergence of monopoly or do you think that's quite implausible the question of where a kind of counter movement to you know not just to to rontierism but to you know, monopoly power more generally might come from is a really important and interesting one and it's one that more and more people have been talking about in recent years i think it's difficult i think on the one hand it's difficult because 
I think the reason that people like Martin Wolf and others on writing for, for relatively mainstream publications are critical of Rontierism and are critical of too much monopoly power is precisely because they realise that that those things are not good for capitalism. You know, one of the things I say in the book is that is is that you know Rontier capitalism is is you know temperamentally predisposed to low levels of innovation. It's a kind of temperamentally predisposed to to stagnation precisely because the owners of rent generating assets have these incentives to sweat those assets rather than you know to invest in in new products and services and to be and to be innovative and so when mainstream economists and, and people writing for 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 the financial times and economists and others see a rentier economy they see this economy that doesn't generate significant levels of innovation doesn't generate productivity gains and doesn't generate growth rentierism is not healthy for capital at large however it is very, very healthy for the particular capitalist institutions that are in the fortunate position of owning those rent generating assets. And the, the question therefore becomes, you know, and, you know, this is an age old question within political economy is, you know, is do capitals come together to act in the interests of capital as a class? And by and large, they don't. And it's that kind of age old collective action problem, which is that, you know, where the interest of capital is not the same as the interest of individual capitals, you get these types of problems. And so, you know, a good example of, of this would be, you know, if you think about if you think about something like Brexit, where, you know, I think a lot of people were curious as to why a political party that, you know, acted in the interests of of quote unquote productive capital when productive capital was making it quite clear that Brexit wasn't in its interests. So the the question of where that where that movement comes from is an important one. So yes, you know, economists might be, you know, mainstream economists might be negative about monopoly power and rentier capitalism. Yes, they might be in favour, as they typically are, of land value taxes. But that doesn't necessarily mean that those that land value taxes are going to be are going to be introduced, precisely because there are individual capital interests that are so strongly against those types of things taking place. The question of how the interest of capital at large get mobilized is a really interesting and, and important question. I think the other thing that, you know, weighs against this is the fact that so many individuals are also invested, of, of course, in frontier capitalism. You know, there are large segments of the population now in the UK, but also in other countries that are invested heavily in the property market, that are invested heavily in the financial market. I think it's Rutger Bregman who says, you know, we're all, you know, we're all wannabe rontiers now. And many people are not just wannabe rontiers, they're actual rontiers. And so the political obstacles to to moving against rontierism are quite are quite significant in that sense. And it's no, you know, it's not it's not incidental that that, you know, in the run up to the last election, when the Labour Party commissioned, you might have heard about this, there was a, a report that was commissioned called the Land Land for the Many Report. Yeah, there is in fact a PTO episode on the Land for the Many report. If listeners would like to go and go and listen to it, <laughs> yes. So, as as you know, and, and your listeners may, in many cases, know, you know that report it weighed various potential options in relation to land and property, and in particular in relation to taxation. You know what the report actually said and recommended was completely different from what the right wing press in the UK said it, it recommended, and you know the right wing 
press kind of blew up this whole storm about, you know, the fact that Labour was coming for your property, Labour was going to you know, tax your garden and so and so forth. And it kind of exploited this widespread interest of the UK property classes in the continued profitability of frontier capitalism. So there are, I think there are significant obstacles there, both in terms of kind of this relationship between capital and capitals, but also the fact that, you know, rentierism isn't just a corporate activity, it's a household activity as well. Just going back to commentators like Martin Wolf at the, at the FT, I mean, do you think that as well as being concerned about the health of the system in terms of GDP and, and productivity, they're also being more outward facing in their, in their own roles, that they may be more concerned about perhaps a legitimacy crisis for, for capitalism in, in a way that rentiers themselves are forced to be blind to? Yeah, and I'm sure I'm sure that's true. And I think it's not just those types of commentators that are concerned about that legitimacy problem. You know, I think one of the really interesting and and, and kind of telling developments of recent years has has been the fact that a lot of the, you know a lot of the pushback against excess executive pay in the UK and in other countries, not least at at rentier institutions, has come from has come from the shareholding community has come from the institutional investor community because if anyone represents if capital has a constituency that speaks for capital as large then i guess the institutional investor community is it and institutional investors have become concerned precisely about the legitimacy of capitalism in a way that individual capitals aren't right you know individual capitalists and individual executives couldn't care less about legitimacy and you know they are happy to earn as much as they possibly can but the institutional investor community that has shareholdings across capital as a whole if you're thinking about institutions like BlackRock and Vanguard are precisely concerned about about that type of thing because they see that what doesn't look good for capital is probably not good in the long run for their own shareholdings so i think that you know that absolutely that legitimacy question is very very important and it goes far beyond you know the commentators at the ft and it spreads in particular i think into the institutional investor community it's become very commonplace to talk on the left about the financialization of the uk and world economies you argue that that's in fact a somewhat misleading term to describe what has happened in the neoliberal era so could you explain why you don't think it's a useful term to be deploying you're right so one of the kind of I guess, commonplaces even of political economic scholarship in the last decade or so, particularly when talking about the US and UK economies, has been that those economies are kind of quintessential cases of so-called financialization, where the financial sector has become an, you know, an overwhelmingly dominant presence within those economies. I think, you know, the argument is probably stronger in relation to the US, where I think at its peak, the financial sector was, you know, accounted for something like 40% of total corporate profits within the US economy. And it's never come to anything close to that level within the UK. But even so, people have definitely applied that argument to the UK. And the reason I am, I guess, leery of that argument is, is you know, is that it's partly because I don't think the financial sector is or has been anything like as dominant as those accounts suggest. But it's also because while the financial sector has undoubtedly become a lot more significant since the end of the 1970s, which, whichever way you measure it, it's not the only sector of the economy that has become vastly more significant during that period. All sorts of other sectors have, of which real estate would be, you know, probably the main example, but not 
not the only one. And so the argument I try and make in the book is that financialization is not the kind of totality of this significant transformation that's taken place in the economy, but it's part of that transformation and that it that it makes more sense to think in terms of what I refer to as the rentierization of the economy. So the, the economy hasn't become dominated by financial institutions. It's become dominated by rentier institutions of all sorts of different types, of which financial institutions represent one kind, but only one kind. And what I say in the book is that if you, if you want to think about this kind of relationship between financialization and rentierization, that maybe one way to think about it is to say that we can think of financialization as the kind of the leading edge of rentierization, but that the process of rentierization is a much broader one. And if you limit yourself to thinking about financialization, you're really missing out on you know, much of the significant activity that's been taking place in the UK economy in recent decades in the realms of things like intellectual property, in terms of, you know, digital platforms, in terms of real estate, all of which I argue are fundamentally about rentierism. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.